We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 will begin in verse 5. Today I have the joy of introducing to you our, our preacher for the day, uh, Dr. Jason um, uh, DeRoshi. Uh, Jason and his wife Teresa and their family have been members here for a little over a year now. They've been with us for, for a while. Uh, they are a faithful family at our church. He is a faithful husband. Uh, he's also a professor of, of Old Testament at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and a gifted teacher. And today we have the joy of hearing him unpack this passage for us. So um, I, I believe you'll be blessed. I'm excited that you, we get to hear from him um, in the scriptures. So let's read Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 21. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I asked, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous for those who are not a nation. With, foolish, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for, for the gift that it is to us. May it set upon our hearts and our minds. May it shape us and convict us and encourage us. May it call someone to salvation. May it assure others of salvation. May it help us understand your grace towards us. May it send us on mission. Spirit, speak a better word than Jason has prepared. Speak to our hearts in a way that only you can change us and shape us. In your name, amen. Jason, come. If you haven't opened your Bible yet, I encourage you to do so to Romans 10. We're going to use it a lot. In our passage, Paul actually is using his Bible a lot. There's 12 Old Testament citations or allusions in our 17 verses, which might be why they asked me to preach it this week. 
So it kept me busy trying to track Paul. I'm delighted to be able to open this word, a living word that's able to change lives. It's the very means by which God saves us. It's the means by which He sanctifies us. So, Pastor Josh already prayed. I'm going to ask that you pray with me one more time. Father, you are so kind that rather than wiping out sinners, you give us your word. You entered into space and time and spoke in a way that we could understand. And through it, you are saving an omni-ethnic people for yourself from every tongue and tribe, people, nation. Magnify Christ today by making Him known. For His glory I ask. Amen. Our passage begins in 10.5, but 10.5 starts with the word for, which means we've got to go before 10.5 to track our flow of thought. Let's start in 10.1. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for my fellow Israelites is that they may be saved. What does this tell us? It tells us that many of Paul's Jewish kinsmen were not saved but remained under the wrath of the living God. Why? Look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Being righteous is about aligning with God's standard of right order. So he has a right order and always he's at the top. And no Israelite under the Mosaic law, nor any of us in this room, are able to perfectly align with God's standard of righteousness, living for His glory all the time. And because of that, we need a Savior. We need someone, namely Jesus, who can come and perfectly obey, that is, perfectly be righteous, and God can look through him and count his obedience, his perfect righteousness, as ours by faith. Why? Because all of our own attempts to stand right with God ultimately fail. All of us have, in Paul's words in Romans 3.23, fallen short of God's glory. The righteousness that God desires is stated in Romans 9.30. Just look there. The Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have actually attained it, the righteousness that is by faith. That's the righteousness God desires. The Lord intended that the Mosaic law, calling people to do, would actually break them to push them beyond the Mosaic law to see their need for Jesus. That's why it says in verse 4, the end of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is, Jesus' coming 
marks the end of an age of doing. And all of that age of the Mosaic Covenant ultimately pointed to Jesus as the answer to the global problem of inability. Now we come to our passage. It has two parts. Verses 5 through 13 and verses 14 through 21. 5 through 13 highlight that God will save everyone who believes in Christ for righteousness. God will save everyone who believes in Christ for righteousness. But verses 14 through 21 tell us that most of Israel has not believed and therefore will not be saved. Most of Israel has not believed and therefore will not be saved. Let's open up in 10.5. Just track along with me. Notice that it begins with the word for. Here's Paul's logic. The end of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes, for the righteousness by law requires the impossible in order to live. Whereas the righteousness by faith in Christ requires believing in order to be saved. Believing and not doing is the true way to right standing with God. But the law was about doing. And even if you're not a Jew, we are to learn from the Jews' failure that doing is not the way. Paul opens by alluding to Leviticus 18.5. It is a foundational Old Testament text that clarifies the structure of the Old Covenant. Here's what Moses said. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a man does them, he shall live by them. Now while God had redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, most of those in Moses' audience still were stubborn, rebellious, unbelieving. And it is to that hard-hearted generation that God says, do in order to live. And as you can imagine, that would crush them. Only by righteous obedience meeting God's requirements would Israel experience life. So how did they do under the law? Reaching that life that was promised. Well, here's the commentary in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 20, verses 11 and 13. I gave them statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. But... The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. So rather than bringing life, the old covenant brought death to Israel. And at the end of Ezekiel, you may remember, Ezekiel portrays Israel as a nation that is dead. They're like dry bones in a valley. Decaying. Destroyed. As Romans 10.3 says, back into our text, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And the result was their condemnation. As Paul said, the commandment that promised life to me proved death to me. Romans 7 verse 10. 
This is why the law's purpose all along was to push people beyond Moses to Jesus. So I urge you today, do not like so many of the Israelites, stumble over the stumbling stone that is Jesus. He is the only way to life with God. The end of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. So let the law of Moses have its intended effect on you. Turn and look to Jesus. That's what Paul's calling for. Verse 6. Now having noted that pursuing righteousness by law ends in death, Paul contrasts this with a righteousness that comes by faith. And he points again to Moses. This time from the book of Deuteronomy. Look with me in verse 6. He opens by portraying the righteousness of faith as if it were alive, as if it can talk. He says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. I'm just going to stop right there. Because that by itself is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 4. Where Moses says, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust the Canaanites out before you, it's because of my righteousness. The Israelites did not receive the land of promise because of their righteousness. And none of us will enjoy our eternal inheritance because of our righteousness. For mere humans like you and me, God's benefits come by grace alone, working through our faith alone. For like in Israel, none of us in this room are righteous on our own. Now Paul cites Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14. Look again at verse 6. He highlights that the righteousness that's based on faith does not need to look for someone like Moses in order to bring us what we need. He says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. You remember that Moses had to cross the sea and then ascend the mountain in order to get the law of God. And even after he got that law, it wasn't actually able to produce in the people what it promised. They couldn't enjoy life. In contrast, in the new covenant that is operative today, no one needs to ascend into heaven in order to initiate the incarnation. God already sent Jesus down. No one needs to go down into the abyss of the grave in order to bring Jesus up. No, God raised him from the dead on our behalf. God has done what was humanly impossible in making a way for sinners to be declared righteous. We don't need to be Everest climbers or deep sea divers. In Paul's words from 10.8, just look there with me. What does the righteousness by faith say? That the word of Christ is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. 
Now, we don't have time to go back to Deuteronomy 30. But if we did, what I'd be arguing is that it's actually a new covenant prediction. That in the original context, these verses provide the reason why the renewed Israel after exile will turn to the Lord with all of their heart and all of their soul. Why? It will be because God's words, first placed into the mouth of the prophet like but greater than Moses, will then be moved from him and implanted in the mouth and in the hearts of God's new covenant followers. Now notice in 10.6 how it says, God has already brought Christ near. They need not bring him down. 10.7, Christ is already near. They need not bring him up. But then in 10.8 it says, the word is near. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So Christ is near. The word of faith is near. Faith is directly related to Christ. But how can we be certain that this word of faith that declares us right with God is actually near to us and not far away like it was for the Israelites of old? How can we be sure that it's near? And that's what Paul gets at in verses 9 through 13. Notice how verse 9 begins with because. We know that The word of faith and the accompanying righteousness is near because God justifies and saves everyone who believes in Christ's victory and surrenders to His Lordship. That's the point of these verses. He says, beginning in verse 8, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, because, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. Paul gives two qualifications for you and I to enjoy right standing with God and to enjoy salvation. There's two things that have to happen. Number one, there has to be a verbal testifying that Jesus is the master of our heart. And two, we have to embrace in our inner being the truth that he conquered the grave. So let's consider each of these two. Confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Lordship. Where is your allegiance today? That's what's at stake. If you're surrendered to Christ today, I'm going to ask all of you to do something for me. Just with me, say out loud, Jesus is Lord. If you are indeed surrendered to Jesus, just say it out loud with me right now. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. Could you say it? If not, why not? I add, does your life align with such a profession? Or are you more concerned about your kingdom than his? We should be asking that question when we read such words. Does he govern your schedule? Your Twitter feed? How you spend your money? How you spend your leisure? 
How about what you wore this morning? When you went to your closet? Would your spouse or your kids, your roommate, say, with respect to the Lordship of Christ, yes, indeed, I would, from my perspective, say every part of their life is underneath his supremacy? Or would there be areas that those who are closest to you would indeed identify, oh, there's rooms in their life that they have not yet allowed for Jesus' oversight? Is your Lord Jesus? The second part, do you believe that God raised him from the dead? And this is no small matter. Because death is the last great enemy. Once it happens, no mere human can reverse it. That is until God raised Jesus from the dead to life eternal. To never die again. Jesus' resurrection marks the turning point in the history of redemption. Had Jesus never rose, then the evidence would be that our sins have not been paid for, that darkness still reigns, and that you and I are still under the wrath of God. But he didn't stay in the grave. On a Sunday morning, as the sun was rising, a greater sun was rising. And with it, new creation. Paul says in Romans 1.4, Christ Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. Romans 4, 24 and 25. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in Him who was raised from the dead, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. At Jesus' resurrection, new creation dawned. As eternal life overcame the prospect of eternal death. Our having peace with God is fully contingent on Jesus having been raised from the dead. So do you believe that he is risen? So if you confess Jesus' lordship, and if you believe in Jesus' victory, it says, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of the living God against you and your sin. And that is serious. And there's no escaping it. God has to save us from his own just wrath. Every one of us, you, me, need to be saved from that wrath. Because all of us are guilty before the Lord. We have all fallen short of His glory, 3.23. And 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.8, but God, while we were yet sinners, had Jesus die for us. It was an expression of His great love. And now, 10.9, if we could but confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. In 5.9, having been justified 
by faith in His blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? Paul now supplies in verse 10, look with me there, he supplies the reason why we know the logic of verse 9 is true. Here's how it works. If you confess and believe, you will be saved for... With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What Paul now does is he he puts the activities in the order that we normally expect them. Believing precedes the profession. That, That word, justified, is directly related to the word righteousness up in verse 6. And now it's closely tied with salvation. You'll be justified, that is, you'll be saved. Just as faith was closely connected to Christ. Faith in Christ results in justification and salvation from the wrath of God. Now how can we be sure? That we can indeed enjoy right standing with God and be saved. Paul says in verse 11, look there. He cites Isaiah 28, 16. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul believed his Bible. He uses it to justify his arguments. You and I should believe this Bible because it's the very word of God. Because Scripture says in Isaiah 28, 16, which is the same verse that Paul cited up in 9.33, because Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, you and I can have confidence. And amazingly, it says, this shame-free hope is for everyone. Why? Verse 12, look there. For... These conjunctions are just, he's building an argument. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. Well, who's the Lord? Verse 9 already identified that he's Jesus, who now reigns as king of the world. Now, as an Israelite, Paul spoke of only two groups. There are was either a Jew or a Greek. You're either part of Israel or you're everyone else counted as Gentiles. And so the point is that because God declares people righteous by faith and not by the Mosaic law, that faith is available to all people without distinction. How do we know? Verse 13, look there. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Now Paul cites this passage from Joel 2.32. That's the same text that Peter cites at Pentecost in Acts 2. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now back in Joel, the Lord was Yahweh God. But here, the Lord is identified as Jesus. Jesus is both Lord and God. It's His name. His name, which represents all of His power, all of His saving love. It's His name through which 
we can be saved. It's His name upon which we must call in order to be saved. It's not just a general God. That's not enough. The Yahweh of the Old Testament has manifest Himself in the person of Christ. And apart from Christ, there is no salvation. So look at the first word of verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. First word, what is it? Four. So see if you can track Paul's logic. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to start at verse 13 and go backwards. So track with me. Go down to verse 13, then we're going to go to 12, 11, 10, all the way up to verse 9. Okay? Track with me. Beginning in verse 13. Because everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved, there is no distinction between how God saves a Jew or how God saves a Greek. And because there's no distinction, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And because every believer can enjoy such protection from God, Scripture testifies that God justifies all who believe and saves all who confess. And because of Scripture's word, we know that confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead will indeed result in God saving you. And that is why we know that the word concerning faith is near to us and not far off. But Paul had a challenge. And that was that in his day, most of Israel refused to believe and so would not be saved. Indeed, many of us know people, and you actually may be among those who refuse to believe in Jesus right now. The Apostle begins by highlighting what is needed for people to call on the name of the Lord. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. How does it happen? How, how does a person get to call upon God's name and so be saved? How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul's point is that unless someone shares with you the good news that the reigning God is willing and able to eternally save believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you will never be saved. You'll never believe. Now we've already seen back in Romans 9... That God is the one, before anyone is born, before they do anything good or bad, God is the one who chooses whom he will save. But now Paul adds some other key elements. That is, he adds conditions for salvation and means for salvation. We've already seen the conditions. You must believe in your heart that Jesus conquered death through his resurrection. And you must confess with your mouth that he is Lord. Apart from that, you will never be saved. Those are the conditions. But now, he gives us the means 
by which saving faith is awakened in hearts and people call upon the Lord and are saved. The means is detailed here. They stress the need for evangelists and preachers, missionaries, and everyday folk who will boldly, humbly proclaim the good news that they've encountered. They've tasted and seen that God is good and you begin to share it, that Jesus matters. It's the only way that people's hearts will be changed. It's the only way that people will know that there's salvation from the wrath of God. That it's possible for those who believe and call on Christ. No one will call unless they first believe. And no one can believe unless they first hear. And no one will hear unless they're told. Not one of you in this room believed in Jesus apart from having encountered the Word. You had to hear it. Someone had to tell you, or you had to read it somewhere. Maybe it was your parents who shared with you the good news of Jesus. Maybe it was a preacher at a youth camp. Maybe it was a Gideon Bible in a hotel, or a college roommate sharing their testimony. However it came to you, if you have surrendered to Jesus, it's because someone was willing to speak up. Are you willing to speak up? You called on Jesus because someone told you that sin is serious. That hell exists because God is a good judge. That there is hope through Jesus who alone is the way, the truth. And the life. Now Paul cites Isaiah 52, verse 7 in Romans 10, 15. But he alters the text in one key way. Paul says, look with me, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. But back in Isaiah, it actually said, How beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. And in context, in Isaiah, the one was the Messiah. The servant king who, upon the victory of God over all the powers of darkness, proclaims the good news that God reigns and that there is peace and happiness for all who will surrender. But even in Isaiah, there is a group who is waiting on the wall. They didn't win the victory, but they hear that God has won the victory. And all of a sudden, in Isaiah 52, they begin to spread the good news, to share it to others. And that's what Paul is identifying. We take on the mission of the Messiah. That's what the church is. His hands, His feet, His mouth to a needy world. You and I have the opportunity. Indeed, we have the responsibility to proclaim the good news that God reigns in Jesus and that He has provided a way of hope, a way of help, a way of salvation. All who fail to call on the Lord will perish. But everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. But now look at 10.16. But they, that is the Jews, have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? A citation from Isaiah 53.1. Now Isaiah 53 is that, is that great Old Testament chapter 
that details the amazing exchange. Our sins put on the Messiah. He bears them all the way to the cross and his righteousness counted as ours. And in the text, many from the nations are awed by God's God's mercy. But in that very chapter, we also learn that some of Isaiah's audience, his his Jewish audience, will not listen. They will not believe the good news that they hear. Nevertheless, Romans 10, 17, Paul draws an inference from what he's just said in 14 and 15. So it is that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Saving righteousness comes by faith. Faith is awakened only by hearing and hearing is only possible when one is told good news about Jesus. There is no other way to be saved. Paul now concludes his unit by highlighting that most in Israel have heard. They've heard the gospel but not believed, whereas there's a number of people from the nations who have heard and believed. 10.18, I ask, have the Israelites not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now this is a direct citation from Psalm 19 verse 4, where The chapter begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. And just like that cycle of glory that's ever proclaiming day after day, so it is that the word has gone out. This is why Paul says in Romans 15, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. But not only this, Back in Romans 1, 1 through 3, we learned that the gospel concerning the Son was promised in the Jewish scriptures. So it is that Paul queries, says in verse 19, I ask, did Israel not understand? Oh yes, it was right there in their Bible. Did they not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you jealous with those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Deuteronomy 32, 21. Moses had predicted that Israel would make God jealous by their idolatry and that God would in turn make them jealous by bestowing his gift of righteousness on Gentiles. On those that were not his special nation. Moses saw that God would save Gentiles and that by doing so, Jews would become jealous, even angry at God's mercy. With this, Paul now asserts, look at the next verse. Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who didn't seek me. I've shown myself to those who didn't ask of me. Citing Isaiah 65.1. This is just an echo of what Paul said back in chapter 9, verse 30, when he said the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have actually attained it. The Old Testament prophets foresaw that God would save the Gentiles by faith. But then Paul adds in verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Our passage identifies three different types of people. Three different types of people. Those who've never heard the gospel and so have never believed. They've never heard it and so they've never believed. 
Will they be saved? Answer, no. Because saving faith comes only by hearing the word of God. Second group. Those who've heard the gospel but refuse to believe. Will God save them? No. For only those who believe will not be put to shame. Third group. Those who have heard the gospel and believed. These are those who enjoy the righteousness that is by faith and who will be saved from the wrath of God. Now in this room, there are only members of groups two and three. Why? Because this morning, all of you have heard. All of you have heard. So, my first question for application is this. Have you believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and have you confessed Jesus as Lord? If you haven't, today could be your day of salvation. And I invite you to believe and to surrender, to move from darkness into light, to shift from a future of eternal death and damnation and torment to a living hope whose end is eternal life. Sin is serious. And hope exists only for those who turn. It's eternal torment if you don't surrender to King Jesus and believe in Him as the only way. This is not an easy choice. But right standing with God is near if you will but act. This decision will alter your view of what is right and what is wrong. It will guide what you delight in and what you treasure. It will determine your hates and your displeasures. A relationship with God should impact the movies you watch and the music that you listen to. How you manage your money and how you manage your time. What you embrace in culture and what you confront in culture. It will make you more of a servant than a king. And it will move you to pray for help rather than to rely on your own strength. Yet in all of this, it will also supply you with power. It will supply you with hope freedom, and joy. It will grant you endurance in the midst of suffering and give you a reason to live. Walking with Jesus can heal marriages. It can supply wisdom for parenting. It will give you a church family that is present. It will help you care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical and expect more than some think is possible. It will open the door for you to enjoy Christ who is the greatest peace, provision, and protection that you can found, find. In Him, you can be saved. So if you find your heart longing for such a thing, I urge you to call on the name of Jesus this morning. After the service, I'm going to be here Find me, find a pastor that we could pray with you. That all of your life could change today. And that we could help you on your journey. Second question. Knowing that people can only believe in Jesus if they've heard about him. This is a question. Will you commit to share the gospel with one person between now and the end of March?
That's tangible. And for some of you, you might say, my entire network of people are believers. Well, get out. Pause a little bit longer at the gas station. Go inside. Connect. Go to a park and find someone who looks alone. Find Hayden Bach and go meet some Pakistanis. Will you commit? Not one of us in this room believed in Jesus apart from hearing the gospel. You might be the very agent through whom God will save someone just like another was an agent in your life. Our responsibility is to share. It's the person to whom we share that is responsible for God, whether they will believe. We are responsible to share and then we leave the results to God. So I urge you right now, just pause. Think of one person that is unsaved that you know. Think what neighbor or family member is in need of the saving love of Jesus? Do you have a name? Who is your one? Are you willing, humbly, maybe with fear in your soul, are you willing to just share? We're just clay pots. In order to show that the surpassing power comes not from us, but from Him. And that's so encouraging to me. Just be a clay pot. Open your mouth and share. Just pray with me. If you've made that commitment, I wanna, I'm going to pray words that I hope you can embrace. Lord God, you alone can save. I am weak, and my witness for you is imperfect, but I want to be used. And just as you graciously saved me through the hearing of the word, I want to pray that you would help me prioritize a purposeful connection with now you put the name there. Grant me humility, God, not to lift myself up as if I'm better. Grant me boldness to open my mouth. Grant me clarity as I share the hope of salvation and the treasure that is Christ. Help me, God, mercifully bring salvation to this one that I care for. Amen. My last question as we come to an end. Will you join us at Emmaus in praying for God to let us be a thriving body of senders and goers? All for Christ's sake. We seek to glorify God by multiplying churches and declaring the gospel. By declaring and displaying the gospel in our neighborhoods and among the nations. We increasingly want to support and send missionaries at our church. Will you pray with us as we seek to strategize a, a global outreach intentionality? People are sent to preach. Preachers enable others to hear. hear hearing is the means by which God awakens others to believe. And only if people believe can they call upon the Lord and be saved. 
We need to be a people who share the gospel where we're planted. But we also need a people that send others to cross cultures and share the gospel, often with people who have never heard. Maybe God is calling some of you. We have some who've just returned from two years in the Middle East and North Africa. We've just sent some to engage the Muslims in Indonesia. We have others who are being stirred to target South Asia and others considering the Persian Gulf. Maybe God is working in you, and if He is, I urge you, come and talk to the leaders. Missions is part of what we're called to do. This text identifies how beautiful the feet are of those who bring good news. May our church be marked by missions. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.